Thank you for listening to our church podcast, where it is our joy to share helpful truths from the Bible. We pray this serves as one more tool to help develop leaders within our church and community who love and honor Jesus and reveal it by loving others. If you have any questions or comments about any of the messages, we invite you to join us on any Wednesday, 6 p.m., for a group discussion on the passages and sermons found here. All righty, well, this morning we will be continuing our study of the Gospel of Luke. That we started last week. Uh, you'll remember last week, uh, just to kind of give a review, we talked about how Luke was writing to a man named Theophilus, his friend, and he was uh, giving him an account of the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke had compared some written accounts with some interviews, it seems, that he had with eyewitnesses who were actually there who observed the life of Christ. And Luke was so certain that these accounts were reliable and accurate that he decided he wanted to write. Uh, to his friend Theophilus in order to give him the same confidence that what he had heard about Jesus and the miracles and his death and resurrection, that it was all true. And so here in this uh, first story here, Luke begins with the announcement of the birth of John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner of Christ. And As you know, many of you, God had been silent for 400 years. There had not been a prophet. There were 400 years between the last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, And this new prophet, John the Baptist, this child that's going to be born to Zacharias. 400 years of waiting, 400 years uh, with seemingly no end. And Malachi's prophecy, his last, the last chapter of Malachi, it speaks of a day that was coming in the future when the son of righteousness would rise with healing in its wings. That's talking about Jesus Christ. And the same chapter says that before that day, God would send Elijah the prophet to turn the hearts of the people. And this is speaking of John the Baptist. This account of Zacharias in the temple is the end of the 400 silent years. When the angel opens his mouth and says, fear not, Zacharias, those are the first words that God has sent in generations. And Luke, as a good historian, begins by telling us when this event took place, during the reign of Herod. This is Herod the Great, as he called himself, uh, the same Herod that built Caesarea and Masada, these great cities, a fortress in, in the desert called Masada. Herod was appointed to be king of the Jews by the Romans. So uh, some of you know this, Israel at, at the time of Christ was under Roman occupation. So the Romans had conquered the country of Israel and they, were, they had soldiers all throughout the land basically keeping the peace and telling them what to do. So Israel was not its own country here really, they were under the control of the, the Roman Empire. And so during this time, the, the Romans appointed this man named Herod, to basically be in charge of the Jewish people in Israel. He was kind of their governor. And Herod was a ruthless man. We know this in Scripture and in history. Herod murdered many of his own family members. He was the one who who murdered the babies in Bethlehem. You'll remember the story when Jesus was born, and the king was so afraid of this coming king of the Jews, Jesus, that he decided to kill all of the children two years of age and under in Bethlehem. That was Herod who did that. Herod is probably most infamously known for his last act before he died. He imprisoned hundreds of men and he ordered that they would be killed on the days of his death because he was so hated by the people that he governed that he knew they'd be celebrating his death. And so he wanted it to be a day of mourning. So he decided to slaughter 400 men, innocent people, on the day of Herod's own death. So after giving the the time that this story takes place during the reign of Herod, and we'll talk about him more as the book of Luke goes on, Luke then focuses in on a man named Zacharias. You see this in verse number five. Zacharias was a priest. He was one of about 20,000 priests who served in the temple at the time. And his wife, Elizabeth, you see also there is mentioned as being in the lineage of Aaron, which means she also came from a family of priests. 
Her dad, her brothers, her uncles, and so on, all would have been priests in the temple. And you'll notice also there it says he was in the course of Abijah, and that refers to a system that King David uh, had set up to organize the priests. There were 24 divisions or courses of priests that served God in the temple two weeks a year. And so that's kind of how they organized it to make sure that uh, each course was uh, serving in the temple. And Luke describes the character of this couple in verse 6 as being righteous and blameless. So there's two Greek words here. The first means they were, uh, they carefully observed the laws. The second basically means that they were irreproachable. Nobody could even accuse them of doing wrong. These were extremely righteous people. They wanted to follow every command God had given down to the most minute detail. The Greek word for righteous is ahead of normal word order. If you were to look at this verse in, in, uh, in Greek, it wouldn't make sense to do this in English if we said, and righteous they both were. It might sound like I'm Yoda talking or something, but that's how it is in Greek. The word righteous is pushed to the beginning of the sentence, which is one of the ways that Greek has of emphasizing a word. So in English, it might be as if we underlined it and put it in bold. They were really righteous people. But the text goes on to emphasize that point even more by saying they were righteous before God. In other words, these weren't just good people according to human standards. God is the one saying they were righteous. They were righteous in the sight of God. Zacharias and Elizabeth were the real deal. Second Chronicles 69 says, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God's searching eye landed on Zacharias and Elizabeth. As I think about this couple and their, their righteousness, their blamelessness, I think of the beginning of Psalm 119, where it says, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. That was Zacharias and Elizabeth. Blessed are they that keep his testimonies and that seek him with the whole heart. They also do not iniquity, they walk in his ways. Thou hast commanded us to keep thy precepts diligently. So Luke said in in, in verse 6, they were righteous and they walked blamelessly in all the commandments. And again, uh, the Greek word here for walking, normally it's peripateo, which just means walking. Uh, this word is, is a little bit different. It actually means they were headed to a specific destination. So it's kind of like the difference between walking around the mall and walking to work. Okay, so they weren't just kind of walking around. They were walking w- with a destination in mind. It was a focused pursuit of something, and that is holiness. Zacharias and Elizabeth were walking with a focused destination of holiness in mind. They, they were being very careful and diligent to be holy and pure before God. Uh, Commandments and ordinances have to do with the detailed instructions given in the Old Testament law. And Christians, we we often have this perspective that the law is somehow bad. You know, we think of uh, the Pharisees who were big on keeping the law. And yet here we have an example of uh, two great people that were very careful to observe the laws. And yet they're not rebuked for this like the Pharisees. They're actually praised and spoken highly of because they weren't just doing the right things. They were doing it with the right heart. They were doing good out of a desire to please the Lord and to obey him, not just to draw attention to themselves like the Pharisees. So then we have this transition in verse 7. We've talked about how righteous and holy Zacharias and Elizabeth were, what great people they were. But you see in verse 7, they had no child. And I think as we read this, we're supposed to be a little bit surprised by this. I mean, why would God not bless this great couple with children? These were phenomenal people, genuine servants of God, and yet they had no children. They were righteous, both in their, their actions and in their, uh, their desires. Their heart was to please the Lord, and yet God had not allowed them to have children. And 
We know in the culture of Judaism, this was uh, barrenness was often seen as a punishment for sin. Later in this chapter, we see that Elizabeth says her barrenness was a reproach to her. In other words, it grieved her that she did not have children. Verse 13 seems to indicate that Zacharias and Elizabeth had prayed many times. You remember the angel says, God's heard your prayer. So they had been praying for a child, and yet God had not given them one. I imagine that they, they read accounts in the Old Testament, like Genesis 25, where, where Rebekah is barren, and Isaac prays and says, God, will you give my wife a child? And he does. And I can imagine them getting great hope by this and thinking, we should pray as well. Maybe God will answer our prayer to have a child, and yet God hadn't. Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer had not been answered. And they were doing everything right. They were serving God. They were living according to his commands, and yet they had no children. And verse 7 gives two reasons for this. Barrenness and old age. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were well stricken in years, which is an old English way of basically just saying old. Okay, so Luke, Luke uses a similar phrase in chapter 2 to describe Anna, who was 84 years old. So the point is, that, that these folks were way beyond ever having a child. They were far too old to have a child. That's, that's the point of that phrase. When they were younger, no doubt, they had hoped that at some point God could remove the obstacle of barrenness and give them a child. But now that they were both old, it just solidified in their mind, we're never going to be parents. We, we don't even have a chance anymore. So I want us to take a step back here and just consider how different God's perspective is from ours. So it seems here that God's not blessing these people, even though they're doing right, which doesn't make sense to us. Kind of like Job. You remember the story of Job, where Job's doing everything right, and yet God sends uh, disaster and calamity into his life. And his three friends are saying, well, if you were doing everything right, God wouldn't do this to you, right? And, and it's, it's as though if, if you follow God, you're going to be blessed, is, is the idea. And no doubt Zechariah and Elizabeth didn't understand why they were being treated this way, even though they were doing all the right things. But from God's perspective, it was best for them. God wanted John the Baptist to be recognized around Israel as sent from God. And the people needed to hear his message in order to be prepared for Jesus' arrival. And we see, as, as you continue at the end of the chapter, you see that when this child is finally born, this miraculous child born from an old couple, they're saying, what kind of child is this? God had focused attention on John the Baptist because of his, his miracle birth story. And what better way to draw attention to the first prophet in 400 years than a miraculous birth from a barren woman who was elderly? So Zacharias and Elizabeth, they may have been tempted to think that God wasn't blessing them with children despite the fact they were living uprightly before him. But what they didn't understand is it was exactly because of their righteousness that God had chosen them to be the parents of the first prophet in 400 years, John the Baptist, the man that Jesus said was the greatest human being to have ever been born. I mean, can you imagine a better blessing than that, having a child like John the Baptist? So it seemed like a curse was actually a blessing. God had chosen them to be the parents of the greatest human to have ever lived. And they, of course, didn't see this perspective, but God knew precisely what he was doing. And a lot of times in our lives, it seems like God isn't treating us fairly. We do the right things, and yet God doesn't seem to bless us in the way that we want him to. God doesn't answer our prayer sometimes, even though uh, we don't have any sin that we know of in our lives and we're praying and we're earnestly seeking maybe even something good. And yet God doesn't answer our prayers. And you feel like you're doing everything right, yet no answer. And we can look at the story of Zacharias and Elizabeth, knowing what's coming later in the chapter, and we can think, oh, well, I know what God's doing here. He's, he's trying to draw attention to John the Baptist and, and to use him. But, but Zacharias and Elizabeth didn't know that. It's not like 
they had this idea when they turned 80, oh, we're still going to have a kid. No, they had no idea. As far as they knew, there's no way this is going to happen. But God sees the end of your story just like you can look at the end of Zechariah and Elizabeth's story. And he knows what he's doing. Just like you can read stories in Scripture knowing what will happen and seeing God's hand in each event, God has that perspective of your life. And I think this is one of the reasons that we have a Bible. Many of the stories uh, in the Bible, I think, just give us, kind of peel back the curtain and let us see God's viewpoint of our lives. I think of uh, Joseph in the book of Genesis. And we talked about this, I think, on Wednesday night, how if you were Joseph being sold into slavery by your own brothers, you know, thrown in a pit, then sold as a slave, and then you get falsely accused. Uh, this is all in the, in the last half of Genesis. Read it sometime. It's a fascinating story. He gets falsely accused of something he did not do, gets thrown in prison, and yet he was doing everything right, and God had a plan for it. He used those circumstances to bring Joseph to Egypt, where he would eventually be second in command. And actually, if Joseph had not been in that position, he would have starved to death because a famine was coming. And God used Joseph and God told Joseph, you need to store up food for these seven years in order to feed your family. And so God orchestrated the events of Joseph's life in order to use him to save the lives of countless people, including his own family. But Joseph didn't know this when he's in the pit. And Joseph didn't understand this when he was sold as a slave or when he was falsely accused and thrown in prison. He had no idea. All he saw was prison bars and bad circumstances. And he felt like God was was just not blessing him in spite of his righteousness. He didn't have a clue why it was happening at the time. I imagine that Zechariah and Elizabeth, just like, just like Job or just like Joseph, for many other examples in the Bible we could look at, they're thinking there's no way in the world this could be accomplishing anything good. And yet God is good and God is wise and God is just in everything that he does. And what the Bible does every once in a while is give us a glimpse of how God works. And it doesn't do this in every story. There are some stories in the Bible that we look at and we still don't quite understand why this happened. I, I think of the story of Job. You see some of the reasons, but you know, why did Job's children have to die? That doesn't seem right to me. You know, even at the end of, of Job's life where he's blessed with more children and more riches and things, well, he still has those 10 graves of his little kids. That doesn't seem right to me that God did that. And so the Bible doesn't give us all the answers in every story, and yet occasionally it does. It shows us what God's doing and why he's doing it. And we can have confidence in the information that we do have in Scripture that everything God does is wise and everything God does is just. Even when we don't understand why it's happening. Some of you know I recently had an incident in the ocean where I I stepped on a sea urchin. And so I can't walk normally. I can't work right now. And this is one of those, it's not, okay, I'm not comparing my trial to Job's here, but uh, this is one of those situations where I just don't understand why it had to happen. Like, it's just such a random thing. Like, my brother was swimming with me in the exact same spot, and he didn't step on it. Well, what's going on here? Why, why did God make this happen to me? Why did that wave push me right into that spot where the sea urchin was? And I, I don't have the answer for that. I, don't, I have absolutely no idea why God's doing this or what he's trying to achieve, but I have confidence that Whatever it is, God knows what he's doing. Random things don't happen in our lives. Even the things that are seemingly random, we'll get into this later, but the things that we think are just random circumstances, God is using those to orchestrate his good purposes in our lives. And even when we don't understand why negative circumstances come, we can trust that God is working in and through that. You see in verses 8 and 9 that a few more details I want to get into, and it might seem somewhat random and disconnected to what we've talked about so far, but I think you'll see as we get to the end here, why I decided to include them. Verse 8 says, And it came to pass that 
while he, Zacharias, executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. So Zacharias' uh, division or course of priests was on duty at this specific time. This was uh, one of their two weeks a year to serve God in the temple. And, and uh, as we mentioned uh, earlier, David had organized and, and planned the priesthood and divided it into 24 sections actually before the temple was even built. You remember his, his son Solomon is the one who builds the temple. And so David had organized this. And in 2 Chronicles 13.11, we, we get a glimpse of what some of the activities of these priests were. If you're wondering, what did the priests do in the temple? Uh, 2 Chronicles 13.11 says, They burn incense unto the Lord every morning and every evening, burnt sacrifices and sweet incense. The showbread also they set in order upon the pure table, and the candlestick of gold with the lamps thereof to burn every evening. So the priests... Morning and evening, they were responsible to offer burnt sacrifices and incense, which is what uh, we see Zacharias doing. They would also set bread on uh, the table, and they would care for the candle to make sure that the, the, burning, the, the candle was supposed to be burning 24 hours a day in the temple. And so that was some of what they did. It was a lot of ceremonial things they took care of in the temple. And in verse 9, the text says, On this particular day, Zacharias was chosen for the privilege of burning incense in the temple. And this was a, a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. A priest was not allowed to offer incense more than once in his life because of the number of priests. And in fact, uh, many priests never had the opportunity. So whoever was chosen for this honor would select two other priests to accompany him to the holy place. One would set the coals on the altar and the other would prepare the incense. Then they would both leave. And and Zacharias, in this case, would be left alone in the holy place. Zacharias would then place the incense on the altar And then he was expected to leave the holy place and offer a benediction to the people outside and lead in prayers and things like that. And so it's during this time when Zacharias was alone in the holy place that the angel appears to him. And we'll be looking at that in the next couple of weeks to see what happens when he's in that, in the temple. But I want us to consider one interesting concept that's found here in verse 9. You may have noticed it says, Zacharias was chosen by lot to enter the temple and offer incense. So they cast lots in order to decide which priest would go into the temple. And lot casting is uh, not something that we do too much today, but it's found actually quite a bit in Scripture. Uh, The first appearance is in Leviticus 16, where Aaron is told to cast lots over two goats. One was to be chosen for a sin offering, and one was to be let go. And then in Joshua 14, the land is divided by lot casting as well. And you may recall in the the story of Jonah, remember when they're all on on the ship, and they're trying to decide whose fault it is for this storm. They cast lots. And Jonah's chosen, and then they throw him overboard. So lot casting is found throughout the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we see in Acts 1 that they cast lots, the apostles did, in order to choose who would be Judas Iscariot's replacement as the 12th disciple. And so it seems that lot casting was an acceptable way of making decisions in in, uh, the Old and New Testament. We see in uh, Proverbs 18, verse 18, it says, "...the lot causeth contentions to cease, and parteth between the mighty." So this verse is saying that lot casting was a way that people would make decisions. If there was a contention between two people or a decision that needed to be made, they would cast lots to make that choice. It's sort of like throwing a dice to see which direction we should go with this choice. And Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. That's a very interesting verse. It's saying that apparently... The result of lot casting is decided by God. 
When people throw the dice and say, okay, which decision should we make? Somehow God controls what that decision is. And so we see throughout the Old Testament, law casting is used uh, as a metaphor for life. That the things that happen to you that are beyond your control are like casting a lot. It seems random, like throwing dice, and yet it's directed by God. God is in control of how your lot lands. We're going to look at a, a few verses to demonstrate this. But first, and I do want you to notice as we go through these, the connection between portion and lot. So you see in Psalm 16, verse 5, it says, The Lord is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. Thou maintainest my lot. Uh, Jeremiah thirteen twenty five says, This is the, thy lot, the portion of thy measures from me, saith the Lord. So there you see again, lot and portion together. They're basically synonymous. And then at the end, it says that this is from me, saith the Lord. So our lot is given to us from God. Ecclesiastes 5.18 says, Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him. For this is his portion. And the word there actually means lot. Verse 19, Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him the power to eat thereof and to take his portion or lot and to rejoice in his labor, this is the gift of God. So we're all given a lot from God. As Ecclesiastes says, some of us are born in wealth, some of us aren't. Some of us have certain abilities and other people don't have them. Some people are just born with apparently more blessing than others. And this is our lot. And whatever our portion, whatever our lot is, we should accept it as a gift from God. So your lot in life is what God has chosen for you. It may seem uh, by chance or random, but God is directing it. And in our text Zechariah and Elizabeth had received the lot of barrenness or infertility from God. They were unable to have children. And I don't think they understood why this was. Again, they were trying to serve God. They were doing everything right, and yet they were unable to have the blessing of children. And as the story opens, Zacharias is serving God in the temple. And he and Elizabeth are walking righteously before God. It seems that they had accepted their lot in life as being from the Lord. Little did they know that what seemed like a curse was actually an unbelievable blessing. Verse 10 says the people were waiting outside praying while Zacharias entered the temple. And twice a day incense was offered in the temple representing the prayers of the people outside. And Acts chapter 3 mentions that Peter and John went to the temple at the ninth hour, which would be 3 p.m., for this hour of prayer. So twice a day in Israel at the temple in Jerusalem, people would gather to pray to God and to offer incense. And incense is seen... Uh, throughout Scripture as a representation of prayer. Psalm 141 says, Let my prayer be set forth before thee as incense, and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. And that's referring to the the sacrifice of incense in the temple that we're we're looking at here. Revelation 8, we're not going to take the time to look at this this morning, but Revelation 8 describes a scene where the angels take incense and offer it with the prayers of the saints on the altar before God. And in chapter 5 it says that in heaven... There are golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of saints or Christians. So evidently, God keeps our prayers. When we pray to God, like a loved one treasures uh, a note from someone, that's how God is with our prayers. He keeps them. Zacharias and Elizabeth were both righteous and godly people, and we're just going to conclude today by giving a little bit of application here. Despite the faithfulness of these two folks, their pursuit of holiness and righteousness God had not allowed them to have children. They were past the point of being able to have kids at this, you know, their old age. 
And it would have been easy for them to become bitter and angry at God. And yet, that's not what we see. We see the story beginning with them serving God in the temple. They continue to do what's right and to live righteous lives and to serve God, despite the fact that uh, from all of their uh, perception, God was not being very good to them. Of course, they didn't know that God had chosen them not just to have a child, but be, to be the parents of John the Baptist. They wouldn't just be parents like everybody else. They would have this miraculous birth story. And their son would grow up to be the first prophet in 400 years that would announce and prepare the way of the Messiah. And so what seemed like years of God ignoring their prayers was actually God's plan to bring attention to his prophet that would be their son. And when many of us would have given up trying to serve God and think, well, this just isn't working, they kept going. They kept living righteously and they kept serving the Lord. Daryl Bach wrote a, a commentary in the book of Luke that I really enjoy, and he said on this text, he wrote, God is gracious in seemingly mysterious ways. Sometimes we are deprived of something because God has better things awaiting us down the road. When we wait patiently on the Lord, he often gives us more than we imagined possible. Zacharias and Elizabeth wanted a child. What they got was a prophet. So what we learn from the text today is do right, even when it doesn't seem to be working. Don't just serve God when things are going well. His plan might be different for you. It's not that God's cruel or that he's necessarily punishing you. He might just have a different idea in mind for you that you don't see. So be patient and keep doing right because God sees you. Keep serving the Lord faithfully even when it, uh, circumstances aren't going well. And while I was preparing the sermon, I actually prepared the sermon a while back when I was uh, working at a warehouse job. And I remember that day I had, uh, while I was at work, I was just praying about something that had really been bothering me for a while, something that I wanted the Lord to do in my life. And it just seemed like it wasn't going to happen. Just it, There was no end in sight here. And I had been praying about this really for a couple of years and wondering why God wasn't answering me and what, what was going on here. And it, was, it struck me as funny. I actually started laughing in the middle of my prayer because I realized I had just spent like the previous night a couple of hours preparing this sermon on how Zachariah and Elizabeth kept serving God even though God wasn't answering their prayer. And here I am getting all upset at God because he's not, he's not doing that for me. And I tell that story because it's easy for us to agree with everything that I've said when it's abstract, right? We can all agree, okay, yeah, God does things even when we don't see it and we need to trust him, that's fine. But what about in your own life? What have you been asking God to do and he just doesn't seem to be responding? How is your attitude? Because even as I write a sermon about having the proper attitude and trusting God's sovereignty and his timing, even in the midst of writing that, sometimes I have to stop and chuckle about how I personally fail to do so. God sees you and he knows what you're doing. So keep serving the Lord, accepting the lot that he's given you, and don't make your faithful service to God contingent on his doing everything the way you want him to in your life. And before we conclude, I want to uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 10. I want to take this opportunity to speak to just a minute, for those of you who perhaps are new to Christianity or uh, maybe you're not even sure what it means to be a Christian, in Hebrews 10, verse 10, it says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest standeth daily ministering and offering some, oftentimes the same sacrifices which can never take away sin. This is talking about uh, the type of thing that Zacharias did, going in the temple and offering sacrifices. And he, the author of Hebrews is saying that doesn't take away our sins. Verse 12, but this man, talking about Jesus Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So for many centuries, priests offered sacrifices every day in the temple. 
And yet, what, what Hebrews is saying here is when Jesus died on the cross, as the Lamb of God, he bore the sins of all humanity on himself. It was a once-for-all sacrifice for sins. And if you would like to uh, learn more about how you can receive that forgiveness of sins, I would encourage you who are here, of course, if you have any questions about that, come talk to myself, come talk to somebody here. Do not leave our church uh, without knowing what it means to be saved from your sins. And if for those of you joining us online, I'd invite you to look in the description. There will be a link to uh, a Discover Jesus page on our website that will give you a clear presentation of how you can know from the Bible that your sins are forgiven. So we'll conclude this morning by reading our text once more. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, it says, There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the course of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying without at the time of incense. And we'll pick up the story there right, right there next week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I'm thankful for the opportunity that we've had to learn from your word and to see an example of a man and his wife that served you sincerely, Lord, and wanted to do what was right and pleasing in your sight, even when you didn't seem to be blessing them with a child. And, and yet they just kept going. They kept serving you. They kept doing what was right. I pray, God, that we would take this example of Zacharias and Elizabeth and that we would apply it to our own lives and to think about how we could better serve you, Lord, and how we can live righteously and pure in your sight. I pray, God, that you'd give us all confidence, even in uh, the circumstances going on in our world today, just these crazy times we're living in. I pray that you give us all confidence that you do what is right. And even when we don't understand that, when we don't see that, when it seems like just a random bad thing that happened to us, Lord, give us confidence and assurance from your word that you are in control and that you are just. And help us to trust you in that. We hope the message you just heard was helpful to you. It means a lot to us that you would join us for this podcast. For more information about our church and meeting times, visit lbcmiller.com or call us at 219-885-9303. We would love to hear from you.